The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with a first-time guest, possibly not a last-time guest, Matt Manning of PwC. Matt, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's exciting for me to be here, and I actually mean that because I've heard your show before. Well, thank you. You and Paul Lindwan have a new book out from uh, Harvard Business, and it is an intriguing volume for a variety of reasons. I, I got to start by asking, you know, why the title and why did you guys do this book? I mean, Beyond Digital is a great title. Yeah, well, great. I'm glad you started there. Look, the the reason this book came about is because, first of all, we were hearing from so many executives across industries about the huge number of digital initiatives that they were running and literally hundreds of millions of dollars that they were pouring into digitization. And everyone being asked about, well, what's your digital strategy? But despite the fact that they were investing these huge amounts of money, they weren't really creating any substantive differentiation for their companies. It's not as though they suddenly were gaining some massive new competitive advantage, you know, because they came up with a cool new digital way to do uh, whatever they were doing before. Um, And so that really got us thinking to see, you know, what's happening. And we started to realize that, you know, just incrementally digiting your, digitizing yourself was really leading you to nowhere. It wasn't really creating any differentiation. And then we wanted to study, well, what does? What does it take to actually succeed, not just with digital transformation, but how do you succeed as a company in the digital era? Uh, if, you know, we all know technology is important, then what do you do to actually harness it in a way that's going to create real uh, impact for your customers and also real competitive differentiation? Okay, so the the differentiation side is something that we discuss here on my show pretty regularly. If they're differentiating in what they do and how they operate, um, what why not with the products and services? So that you, you make a differentiation yourself here. What's the crux of this matter? Well, look, the, the first thing is that I think it's important for companies and organizations, not just companies, all organizations today to understand that the way in which you create value has changed. In the past, it was really about acquiring scale and some captive assets that you own, you know, factory or, you know, some IP. And you just you protect that and you acquire scale in that. And that's how you could succeed. But now the whole context has changed. You know, consumers are able to exert uh, their desires and needs very, very quickly in ways that they couldn't before. From a supply context, uh, there's so many more options available. You can partner in new ways that weren't available before. And the world has become very interconnected. There's no way to escape that. The ever given gets stuck in the suck in the Suez and it impacts everyone. So that means that you can't compete anymore just on the basis of great products and services because those things will come and go. But, you know, when you're dealing with changes in context around you, uh, if you're only competing on the basis of products and services, it could be that one day your products and services are obsolete. But if you start to compete on the basis of capabilities, 
which is on how you operate, uh, which is a, really a combination of, of not just assets that you own, but also of know-how, of people, of technology. It's included in that. When you start to compete on the basis of capabilities, then you can apply those capabilities to real customer needs and issues. And it doesn't matter what's changing around you. You know, it could be ESG or the next big disruption that comes at you, you'll still find a way to be successful. And so that's what we think is at the heart of real differentiation if you're going to compete in this kind of a, you know, beyond digital world. You know, look, one of the, the, the companies that um, that we had the privilege to actually spend time with um, is a company called Komatsu. It's a Japanese uh, company that manufactures primarily uh, machines for the construction industry. And look, um, you know, they were historically competing on making the, so the next best, you know, uh, earth moving equipment or forklift or, or whatever else they do. But they recognized that that was going to be a very difficult way to compete, particularly against, you know, the lower cost Chinese competitors. And so they shifted their focus to saying, instead of trying to sell, you know, innovate the next best product, what's the real problem I've got to solve for my customer? And they started to look at, well, construction companies have a real problem around uh, running the construction project efficiently and getting it done on time. It was a much bigger issue. And so they started shifting the way they compete to, how do they solve that problem? And then invested in a digital platform that they opened up actually to their competitors even. And they started sharing their own machine data. They started sharing data from other companies in the construction ecosystem and then making that available to their customers so that they could more effectively plan and run their construction jobs. And the cool thing is during COVID, when all the construction sites in the world were shut down, nobody was buying construction equipment anymore. They actually managed to sell more work based on the platforms that they were offering, the services they could offer on that those platforms, which they never would have been able to if all they were worried about was just you know trying to keep selling more equipment like they did in the past. Okay, so they they appended services to what traditionally would have been you know like Caterpillar, just big machines out there moving whatever they were designed to move. And more than just services, right? They weren't just selling only the services they deliver. They actually built a whole platform that allowed their customers to work with multiple suppliers. And so, you know, it could be that actually that customer was maybe working with a competitor even, but it was solving their real issue. So they shifted their model to saying, hey, look, we're going to make our model, our capability around really understanding what the customer issue is and how do we solve it. Uh, and some part of that could be services and products we offer. And some part of that might need to integrate, you know, other offerings. Okay. How long did it co- take them to come to the realization that this was the next direction they needed to move into? Uh, I don't know exactly how long, but from what uh, they shared with us, it was at least a two to three year journey to sort of shift in this direction. And it started with, you know, really getting the kind of market insight to say, look, you know, uh, how would we compete in a fundamentally different way? And one way could be to throw a ton more money at innovating and trying to beat, you know, uh, uh, their competitors with, you know, maybe more add-ons or maybe even adding some services. But the other way would be, Hey, if we just figure out how to keep uh, solving our customers' problems. So they built a whole capability. They built a team whose single job is actually 
to go and understand what are the real issues that their customers are facing and then together design with them how do we solve that, including you know things that maybe others may, may provide. But because they focus on that as a central capability, that feeds their choices both about the products that they design, the services they deliver, but also you know helps them fa- uh, make sure that they're kind of competing in a way that's relevant for the moment. Uh, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with uh, with Matt Manny, co-author of Beyond Digital uh, from Harvard Business Review Press, and we shall return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Matt Manny. Um, Beyond Digital is the book. It's from Harvard Business Review Press, uh, co-authored with Paul Lineland. And um, again, find the book. It's this. This is new. This is. I got to tell you, it is an excellent uh, book. Um, so go get it, read it. I got to tell you, you know, the one thing when I started seeing that you handpicked these companies, it brought to mind Jim Champy's book, Good to Great. And seven or eight years after Champy's book came out. The companies he chose that went from good to great were mostly tanking. So I, I applaud you for your bravery in, in picking these companies. But what what was that criteria that that drove you to pick these companies? Well, uh, look, first, we didn't necessarily pick these companies. Actually, the way this came about, we started actually with a broad survey and we asked companies, thousands of companies across industries saying, look, in your industry, who are the peers you actually want to learn from? And, you know, who do you respect? And then based on that, we had to look at companies that had actually been through some kind of transformation. It couldn't have been, you know, companies who were, say, in the middle of it. We had to look at companies who had been through it and came out on the other side to see whether they had succeeded or not. And then we reached out to uh, those and uh, got, you know, for, for 12 of them, we were able to actually get access to their management teams and their leadership teams and spend time interviewing them. And that's been the great thing is that we actually could engage with the leadership teams. And they shared, by the way, not just their success stories, but also where they had, you know, spectacularly failed. And just to your point, right, uh, one of the companies we, we uh, profile in the book is Citigroup, which uh, is probably you know, one of the best examples of a company that literally was in an ex- existential crisis uh, when the financial crisis hit, right? They almost went out of existence. And, and they were, you know, that was a turning point for them in recognizing, hey, look, you know, what we were doing in the past of just acquiring assets and trying to gain scale and become this huge, giant financial supermarket isn't working. And that's when they went back to their core focus of saying, look, how do we actually empower people's financial lives? And what are the things that we do uniquely well? What are the things that our customers like about us? And how do we use now technology to actually fulfill that purpose, what people are really looking for? And believe it or not, you know, by the end of 2020, they shifted their their focus around areas where they felt like they really had a right to win in consumer banking and in business to business banking. And by the end of 2020, they got rated the world's best digital bank. I mean, um, so that is kind of uh, my guide to say that, look, um, it's not that you, you aren't going to face problems. I'm sure probably every one of the companies that we profile will run into some kind of challenge or another. But it is very much around how you lean into those problems and, and how you address them. 
And I'm pretty confident that based on the, the studies that we did that end um, of these 12 companies, they really give us confidence that you can actually address these issues if you shift towards a, a beyond digital model of thinking and you're not just trying to increment your way to greatness through more digital initiatives. Okay. Um, I think that segues nicely into my next question. But you use the phrase in the book, the context in which companies operate. So Citibank found itself in a, a, a different context. But what, what, what are the keys to adapting? First, what do you mean by the context? And then what are the keys to adapting to a changing concept? context look i think the first um, uh, thing to understand is that um it's not just that the world around us changed but let's understand how, how so and we list out three things one we say it's the revolution of demand and that is the way in which consumers can express their demand is you know it, it is massive in terms of the speed at which they can express their desires and wants and literally shift markets uh, and all the channels that they have to do that. Second is the revolution of supply. It's um, the ability to, there are so many different competitors today, but also uh, the fact that you can collaborate in ways that you couldn't before. The bar barriers to that collaboration are significantly lower just with what technology allows us to do, with sharing data and being able to collaborate and work together more effectively. And then the other big thing is just the sort of the, the transformation of, of the context of the world that we live in. We're in a much more connected world where, um, you know, something happening somewhere else, you may think it has nothing to do with your government agency or your business, you know, because it happened in some far corner of the world. But in, in fact, it, it does have impact. Um, and so when you start to understand that is when you start to shift your thinking towards saying, look, OK, how do I um, compete in a way that's going to outlast all these disruptions and changes around me? And that's what we lay out in the book is competing on the base of building differentiating capabilities and differentiating capabilities. Are, again, there are combinations of bringing your unique know-how, your processes, your IP technology, your people, combining those things together in a way that allows you to create value that your competitors can't easily replicate. If you focus on that and you build that capability, you'll find a way to grow no matter what disruption is coming at you. And we proved that through a number of the examples in the book. How important are relationships when you're evolving this direction that you're going in? So, I mean, you can explain I don't want to use the word, but I will. You can exploit those relationships by asking your current customers a lot of questions that other people can't ask. Well, uh, it's great that you raised that because one of the uh, seven leadership imperatives that we lay out in the book is around building a system of privileged insights with your customers. And what we mean by privileged insights are, in fact, um, uh, insights that you uniquely can get. But in order to do that, you've got to do that based on building a real system of trust with them. So, for example, you know, one of the great companies we profile in here is Adobe, which shifted to something that they call the data-driven operating model. 
And at the heart of the data-driven operating model is actually getting uh, real privileged insights from a trusted group of customers around their needs and how they use their Adobe's products and services, um, not just for the purpose of selling them more stuff or making, you know, uh, 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 Adobe services necessarily better, but it was it started first um, on the basis of improving the customer's experience and with a promise and commitment from Adobe that they were going to use the data in a responsible way and putting around that commitment the right internal governance, the controls, so they could ensure that that data was not in any way misused or, you know, twisted for some other purpose or someone comes along and says, ah, you know, well, I'm going to use this to raise prices, let's say. Uh, but actually, how do we use this to make things better for our customer? And they wired that then into how they make product changes and improvements for individual customers. And they found that it's been a huge source of growth for them. And in fact, they changed even the way they incentivize their executives around how they use these insights to actually serve their customers. And that's been you know, a massive source of competitive advantage for them. And we think that kind of thinking is going to be important for every organization going forward. It's, you know, all of us have to be responsive and stay ahead of, uh, of customer market needs. Okay. I mean, you, you just referenced this. The, uh, you have seven leadership imperatives for transforming your organization. So I, I would like to uh, kind of briefly go through each, and we, you just hit one. Um, so uh, let's, let's start at the top. Uh, implement digital initiatives. You, you, you've already kind of answered this, but please, one more time. Sure. I mean, look, uh, uh, it starts with instead of uh, just trying to digitize what you do or bring in some cool technology or, 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 or upgrade, I think it's important that you take a step back and you actually reimagine your company's place in the world, which is really look at, well, what is the value that we need to create and how are we uniquely going to do that? What is that real customer problem we need to solve? And how are we uniquely going to build the capabilities that allow us the right to solve that problem in a differentiated way? Now, when you have that addressed, you can figure out how to apply technology to solving that problem. And that leads you then to the second imperative, which is that if you're going to solve that big customer problem, in today's world, there's no way that any organization can do that by themselves. You're going to have to embrace and create value via ecosystems. You have to embrace ecosystem thinking. And that means you've got to find ways to work together with others and not just look at what you get out of the ecosystem, but what are you contributing? What are others getting out of your participation? How do you make sure that the ecosystem wins? And how do you actually make sure that you solve your customers' real problem uh, by working with those ecosystems. That gets you to the, the second imperative. Then the third is what we just talked about a minute ago around building a system of privileged insights with your customers. That's the lifeblood of every modern organization today. You have to have those privileged insights so that you can ensure that you're staying ahead of the market, that you're being relevant, regardless of, of the disruptions that may be ha happening around you. And you've got to wire that into uh, how you solve problems. Because if your mission is about actually solving the customer problem, you figure out pretty quickly that this is what you have to wire into uh, how you do that. And by the way, there's a lot of talk these days about digital natives and how they move so fast and how they respond quickly you know, to their customer needs. 
a big part of how they do that is that they've got privileged insights that form their data strategy, and that's what informs them about where to invest and where to move towards. So let's let's take a break, and we'll hit the last four. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with uh, with Matt Manny, co-author of Beyond Digital from Harvard Business Review Press. Um, get a copy. Um, sit with a highlighter and a notepad. Uh, we'll be wrecked right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. I'm here with uh, with Matt Manny, the co-author of Beyond Digital, available Amazon, probably your local Barnes and Noble. Um, get a copy uh, now. So we were in in the middle of the uh, the seven leadership imperatives. So pick that up, please. Sure. So look, the first three leadership imperatives are around how do you shape value from an external perspective? But then, look, when you start to create value in a new way, you're going to have you can't do it with the old organization. So the next are really about how do you transform and set up yourself to actually create that value? And um, a big part of that is making your organization outcome oriented. And what that means is shifting from the old functional specialization organization to collaborative cross-functional teams that are permanent, that are at the heart of your organization. That's bringing together people from across different functions, whether it's engineering or IT or sales or customer service, who actually work permanently together to solve some kind of customer problem or or really build a differentiating capability for your company. Um, And then when you do that, it also means that you have to shift your model of leadership. It's what we call inverting the focus of your leadership team. If you're going to get people to collaborate in that way, you yourself as a leadership team have to collaborate that much more. You can't work in the same old model of sort of political conflicts in the in the uh, uh, leadership team. But you're also going to likely require different skills. Most organizations we see today, and you see an explosion of new titles, you know, uh, uh, all over the place. And part of that is because you need different skills on the team. You got to shift the agenda. To be able to balance the time that you spend on running the company to deliver today's results um, and also transforming it for the future. And then I think very, very importantly, you have to reinvent the social contract with your people. Now, that's not just a, a nice altruistic sentiment about something good to do. In fact, we think it's essential for businesses to succeed today. Because if you're in a system where you're creating value based on some real differentiating capabilities you bring, you rely on people to develop those capabilities. You rely on people to respond quickly to customer needs. And that means you've got to put people at the center of your value proposition. You've got to have their purpose connected to your company's purpose. You've got to invest in them and develop their skills and capabilities and you got to get the best out of them and engage them in ways that allow them to collaborate and give them the means to do that. So you got to really shift the model from just giving them a paycheck to show up and do a job and, you know, fulfill whatever you tell them to do to actually getting them to lead and, and solving problems and them driving the way. And when you do that, then you get, you know, a really powerful focused engine. And then last but not least of the seven leadership imperatives is if you're going to do all of that, you as a leader need to disrupt your own leadership approach. You've got to make time to develop yourself. You know, often leaders get asked about what they're doing for the rest of the organization. 
seldom do they get asked about what are they doing for themselves. And in today's model, if you're going to succeed as a company, you have to make as important for your leadership team and for yourself, your own development, your own upskilling. And you've got to learn to balance some of the paradoxes that leaders are challenged with today. And we have data around this to show that, look, you know, you can't just be a strategist. You have to be equally good executor. You can't just be the hero leader in the front of the room. You have to equally bring a huge degree of humility to how you address problems. And sometimes you may not know the answer and it's a, you need to admit that. So you get to the right place. And a number of these other paradoxes that we call out. So put together, those are the seven imperatives that leadership imperatives that we think can really help companies succeed, not just today, but well into the long term. Okay, so you're gathering all this data, you're migrating in this direction, but there you also point out the disincentives for bold decision makings, and how do you overcome these? Yeah, it's a great question, because look, it's a big agenda. It's easy for me to get on your show and say, hey, disrupt your own leadership approach and create value in a new way and so forth, but it's a lot to do. And what we heard from many of the leaders we spoke to is that this is, first of all, a leader's agenda. And as a leader, you have to set the agenda to both perform and transform. So that means you got to manage for today and also make sure you set aside time to also work on the future. And there's a number of things that you may need to do. First, it's recognize that you've got to work each of these seven imperatives as a system. You can't just do one of them. You got to do them in a, in a structured way and you're not going to do them all in one shot. You may need to first start with clarifying, Hey, what's our place in the world? How are we going to work with ecosystems? And it might take time to also migrate your organization to really work in an outcome oriented way. Cause there's a number of things you have to change, but you got to lay out that agenda. And then the other thing that we think is you know important and we heard from leaders that they had to do to succeed in this is to actually engage their stakeholders in the process. So the, the leaders we spoke to, they engaged their, their board, the analysts, the shareholders. But I think very importantly and very excitingly, they engaged their customers in the process. And the most successful companies, you know, when they went out and engaged their customers and shared with them the transformation journey they were on and what are the things that we're doing and why they were doing it, they got a huge amount of customer support because customers really get excited about, hey, if you're up for really solving the real problem, like I shared with you in the Komatsu example, it's not just about selling me more stuff, but you want to help me solve a problem. I'm absolutely on board for that. And that helps you really also get the support from your other stakeholders as well, like you know, shareholders or activist investors even who understand that this is the direction you need to go in. Okay, I'm going to ask a, a blatantly obvious question here, I think. Um, when I read something from McKinsey or BCG or Bain, a white paper, usually it's, uh, especially if it's a new topic, it, it focuses on an area where they found a new niche to consult in. Are you doing consulting in this particular area? <laughs> well, look, of course, PwC has been uh, and continues to work with companies around how they uh, create value and uh, around how they digitize and their digital transformation efforts. But that's one of the things that I'm most proud about this work is that we didn't interview companies necessarily where PwC had done the work or where we were trying to sell them more work. This is truly peer reviewed. Uh, in fact, um, 
firm, uh, the majority of the companies we interviewed, we didn't necessarily do the work with them on their transformations. These were things that perhaps they'd done, you know, themselves or with others. Um, and the focus here is really around shaping the ideas that make a difference. And of course, you know, PwC, by the way, we're taking on these imperatives, leadership imperatives ourselves. It's not just that we're giving advice to companies. We're taking these on very much ourselves. So you're, you're getting a little granular there. You're, you're going to live the experiment. Absolutely. Look, one of the things that we've been public about is the new equation, as we call it. That's our purpose to really be uh, as an institution to solve some of the big challenges that society faces. We've committed ourselves to helping to solve the sustainability challenges that the world faces, for example. And we know that that's not going to be done by us singularly. We're committed to actually working together with others in ecosystems to solve that. Uh, and we have made big shifts in our organization. You might have heard in the U.S. we announced a, a big change in our operating model. And really, that's all that is about is uh, uh, aligning our people and our teams and our capabilities to be really focused on delivering trusted outcomes for our clients that make a difference for them. Uh, not just, you know, worrying about what we get for us. Okay. We're going to take our last break. You're uh, listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Uh, Matt and I will return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Matt Manny, author, co-author of Beyond Digital. This this is a great book. So go to Amazon, order it, expedite your order. Uh, make sure you have a new highlighter when you get it in a notepad. Um, so I want to know about outcome-oriented organizations. So what are they and how do you build one? <laughs> well, uh, great question. Uh, so look, traditional organizations uh, almost um, always, you know, focus on functional excellence and building, you know, large functional organizations. And there's maybe some kind of matrix structure and the way those organizations work is you get everyone to specialize in this their, their area, um, and then somehow, you know, the uh, outcome comes out of it on the other end. The issue with those kinds of organizations in today's world, when things are moving at such speed, uh, both from a demand and a supply perspective, is that those organizations lose sight of how do you actually really solve the end outcome. And so outcome-oriented organizations – are, are companies that actually are organized around actually, you know, delivering and solving a real customer issue. And I'll give you a great example of that. One of the companies we spent time with is Honeywell in their aircraft business. And, you know, typically in the aircraft business, they supplied all kinds of components and so forth. But then when they started looking at, hey, for our airline customers, what really matters is uptime, right? They've got to get, keep that aircraft in the air as much as possible. If there's a maintenance issue, it needs to get solved so that aircraft is ready to go. And Honeywell doesn't provide everything that you need, but uh, they had to figure out how do we come together to solve that issue? And so they fundamentally changed their organization structure because they knew that if they just gave this only to the engineers to solve, they'd come up with a sort of siloed solution. And maybe it wouldn't really consider the customer service perspective or the finance perspective. So they put together engineers, IT people, people from customer service, sales, finance, all working together in a permanent outcome-oriented team to solve these issues for their customers. And 
they've made that the heart of how they work in their organization so that these teams are working together collaboratively to develop and deliver new services to their customers and, and really you know, solve their, their real challenges. And that's the kind of model that has helped them not only earn the trust of their customers and build deep relationships with them, but it's allowed them really to stay ahead of the competition in a very difficult field. It is a very competitive field. We watch that a lot in the government market. Some some of the companies you focus on are are B2C. Where where does where do these concepts apply? Uh, do they apply to business to business? Do they only focus on on B2C? I guess the you know the Honeywell kind of leads me in into that answer, but where where does it best fit? Well, look, it absolutely applies to, to both. So we profile B2B companies, as you said, like Honeywell and Komatsu, but also B2C companies like Inditex, who owns the Zara brand, if you've ever shopped there, or Titan, which is uh, one of the largest consumer companies in India's Tata Group, or or even Hitachi, which is both a, a B2B and in some small spaces still a B2C company. Uh, so it certainly applies to both. And even one of the companies that we profiled is very interesting. It's a fintech company in Saudi Arabia. It's a, you know, just a few million in revenue. Uh, and they, they cater to consumers who you might think are sort of on the bottom of the pyramid, um, who are migrant workers uh, and providing them financial services. And the same concepts apply to them in, in finding ways to really create outsized value and, and differentiate and grow very rapidly. Okay. So I guess that you know that that implies you know kind of the answer to my last question, which is does does company size matter when you're looking at uh, at beyond digital? Uh, no, look, uh, one of the things that's uh, certainly clear to us, as I mentioned, you know, we we profile companies from just single digit in millions to multi billion in 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 revenue. Um, and uh, for sure, these leadership imperatives apply to um, uh, all sizes of organization. And I would say, you know, one of the most gratifying things as well has been since the book has been out, we've actually heard from a number of people who reached out to us saying, my gosh, you know, um, I wish uh, every startup company would read this or I'm a startup company. And this has been great for me because it's helping me understand how do I create value beyond just introducing a, a cool technology? Um, and by the way, you know, I think this is really applicable also for sure for companies serving government agencies because those agencies are all about an outcome, right? They're all about some citizen service that they've got to deliver in the end. And when you orient your mission around that and solving that problem, that makes you that much more valuable and compelling to them. And it's not just about, you know, how you grow in size to scale, but Again, if you can find a way to solve a problem that makes uh, that's really meaningful for your customer, it doesn't matter what size you are, you're always going to have viability in the long term. Yeah, and the, the whole customer experiencing is huge across the board and in government, too. And I know that your your D.C. activity for PwC, the company you work for, uh, is is in, involved in that. But that that leads me back to um you know in in a in a regulated market decision making is more difficult and that decision making process often means that missteps will kind of dead end your career 
uh, and that applies probably in the private sector too. So if PwC DC comes up with great innovations for customer service at uh, health, I mean, we're in the midst of this massive health crisis, right? Um, everybody's looking for answers. Lay, lay out a scenario where where you start to convince executives in a, uh, a controlled environment like B2G, um, what, what's the case for change? Well, I don't know the exact answer to that question, uh, but what I do know is that uh, what it takes to succeed today is you've got to invest in building trust and engaging stakeholders to build that trust to take them along. You know, we just uh, uh, released uh, as PwC our, our latest global CEO survey. And the number one thing that keeps coming back year over year is the serious challenge with um, institutional trust. And that's not just in government. That's also in private enterprises. And so look, if we're going to solve some of these big challenges like healthcare or the pandemic or sustainability, that's going to require every one of us as leaders to uh, really lean in and um, and put the effort into actually uh, building trust along with our, our, our stakeholders. And that's why in, in, in the seven leadership imperatives that we lay out, include in that the importance of actually bringing your stakeholders along in the process. And we share examples of how companies have done that, how they engage their customers, their board members, um, you know, their analysts who actually track them, how they involve them in the process. Um, and by doing so, you know, that really starts to, to uh, shift the needle. And by the way, that doesn't, it doesn't just also, you know, push your customers towards the right outcome. It also can be a great source of innovation. So once you start engaging with your customers, for example, around how you want to solve some of their challenges, you get great insights from them that you, you know, might otherwise not get. And that really helps you also innovate and compete and make a big difference. Cool. Do you have any final thoughts for my audience? Um, no, I just say, look, uh, I think it's uh, for, well, I will say it's just a personal view. Um, I think the companies who uh, serve the federal space do a great service. It's not just uh, uh, for themselves as companies, but they do a great service to the nation as a whole. And I hope uh, they take that mission on board and really seek to serve um, our government customers uh, to solve some of the big challenges that we need government to solve. And that they use the seven leadership imperatives in a way that really helps them do that. Um, this is a great book, Beyond Digital, Paul Leinland and uh, Matt Manny. Matt, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Mark. Great to be with you. This is not my day job. I do advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government, and I focus on couple of points that we talked about today, differentiating your company and especially leveraging LinkedIn and social selling to convey the message of your differentiation. If you want to talk about that, drop me a line at markamtower at gmail. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.
There are a million reasons e-commerce shoppers don't buy. In fact, 97% abandon their first store visit. AdRoll retargeting keeps your brand on their mind, so they come back to buy. Visit AdRoll.com to start retargeting today.